Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We'd like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. And those insights range across a broad number of different topics. But today, today, Tim, we get to explore a topic that we started last week, burnout, and we get yeah. to talk about it in more detail. Yeah, we're excited to bring you part two of our focus on burnout, because in this episode, we have an in-depth discussion with Jonathan Malesic. Now, Jonathan is an essayist, journalist, and scholar whose writing has been recognized as notable in Best American Essays in 2019, 2020, and 2021. And he has received special mention in the Pushcart Prize Anthology in 2019. He's a hell of a writer. He is a hell of a writer. And, and beyond that, Tim, he's a former professor and car lot attendant. Which brings a unique, it's important, folks. Just yeah. trust me, we talk about this as we get yeah. in there. And it's it's important, and he brings a unique and powerful perspective on this issue. And what drives burnout and how we can end it. His recent book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives, not only provides us insight into why burnout happens, but also helps us focus on what we can do to counteract burnout in our own lives. Yeah, we are thrilled to have this as a companion to last week's episode with Jen Moss, as it acts as really kind of a nice bookend on the subject with a totally different perspective. Right. And we appreciate both perspectives. And actually, there's some overlap in those perspectives, but they True. also have a uniqueness about them. And they think we think it brings a nice holistic view on burnout, its causes, and the best way to respond when we feel like we may be having it or our company might be driving it. Absolutely. And with that, we ask you to relax. Take a break from everyday stresses and worries with your favorite drink or maybe even a beer float. Ooh, a beer float, ice cream and beer. Mm, Just think saying. about that, people. It might be something you want, and we'll talk about that maybe. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with Jonathan Malesic. Jonathan Malesic, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We are excited to have you. And as we always do, we're going to start with a speed round. Now, often we start with this coffee or tea, but because of some research, we're going to ask a, a little different starting one here. So Lone Star beer or Yingling beer? Oh, In my goodness. That's a very, I mean, the answer is Yingling, but that's a great <laughs> question for someone who had recently, well, I don't know, six years ago, moved from Eastern Pennsylvania, the home of Yingling, to North Texas, the home of Lone Star. And actually now right. they're both brewed in Fort Worth. So <laughs> oh, I did not realize that. Yeah. So you're you're kind of drinking Texas beer no matter which which way you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Second speed round question. Would you prefer to have dinner with Neil Young or Bob Dylan? Oh, Neil, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> easy. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you, by the way. We'll come back to that. We okay. won't drag that out right now, but uh, I'm with you. Go ahead. Okay. So might have a, an interesting answer to this one. Do beer and ice cream mix? They do if you have the right beer. Okay. So you have to explain this <laughs> yeah. because yeah. I read this and I you, you have a whole blog post on this. Yeah. So what is the good a first off explain to our listeners who are sitting here thinking beer and ice cream and not just mix like you eat beer and then have some ice cream, but you actually make beer float. So help yes. us understand 
what a good beer float entails and why it's so good. Yeah. I mean, why is it good? I'll, that's an easy one uh, because it's beer and it's ice cream. Uh, and it's <laughs> two, two of the best things together. So, you know, Amen. why not? Yes, yes. But yeah, the first time I had a beer float was uh, in Los Angeles at a place. It's like a burger place uh, called Golden State. And it's it's super good. And they do, they have a, a bunch of different ice creams, but they only will put the ice cream to make a float in uh, Old Rasputin Russian Imperial Stout. So it's mm. a super malty, very strong, and, you know, for that reason, very sweet, uh, you know, dark beer with a high alcohol content. Uh, and you kind of need all of that to stand up to the ice cream. So... You know, Guinness, for instance, is uh -huh. pretty malty, yeah. um, but it's actually not that sweet. It's it's right. it's you know it's a fairly dry stout, uh, and so Guinness and ice cream don't mix. Uh, you need a a pretty malty stout or porter, and then virtually any ice cream can work. The first time I had it was with this amazing uh, green tea ice Ooh. cream, but you know it, it's always good with vanilla. Vanilla as well. Yeah. But, but so definitely don't mix it with your yingling, right? That, right. That's a, that right. The opposite end. Yeah. Yingling yeah. does make ice cream also, but I don't. But you could, so you could put yingling ice yeah. cream into uh, like a, a milk stout kind of. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. There you go. Ooh, yeah. I, all right. I'm going to have to try this. I'm going to have to. We're going to have to come back to this, uh, this whole Guinness and ice cream thing, because we do have a. Uh, an Irish native on the call here. And so we're going to have to, we might need to play that a little bit diplomatic. Okay. Um, okay. Last, last speed round question is life in a monastery more or less likely to burn you out than life in the corporate world? Oh, less. That's, that's yeah. also an easy one. <laughs> good. Yeah. Good. And why is that? Let's, let's, let's start talking about why, why is the mon monastic life so much less stressful than life in the corporate world? Yeah, I think that the big the biggest reason is that in the monastic life, work has a more limited place. Mm. You when you live in a monastery, your most important thing that you can do is the communal prayer that you're that you engage in several times a day and often for several hours a day. And work exists to well, of course, work exists to support the monastery, but it it's not the most important thing. And so you kind of work has to fill in the space around the thing that is most important to you. And in a modern corporation, the most important, the only important thing is productivity. And so work is the means to that end. Uh, and so, you know, work is kind of constant. Uh, whereas in a monastery, and particularly in the Monastery of Christ in the Desert, uh, which I visited as a, a way to to find an alternative to the mainstream American work ethic, you know, work is is something that you spend the morning doing, but not all day, and it's not the focus of your life. It's not the main thing, yeah. Right. So your definition of burnout is, and I'll quote, the experience of being pulled between expectation and reality at work. So help us understand that. Can you unpack that a little bit for us, what that means? And then what are some of the things that 
are, are driving that as we go into it. I think unpack it first, and then we can talk about some of the driving factors of burnout in, in current society. Yeah. So we we go to work for a reason. We embark on the human project of work with goals in mind. We ex- we want things from it. Most obviously, we want a salary, mm. but that is rarely the only thing that we want. And we have a whole bunch of of social, psychological, moral, and I would even say spiritual ideals that we bring to our work. And those ideals are rarely just individual to us. They're usually shared. They usually come from our culture. You know, so for instance, in U.S. culture, most workers have an expectation whether they express it explicitly or not, that they will find dignity at work. Mm -hmm. And the way we know that dignity is a thing that we expect from work, an ideal of work, is that our politicians talk about it all the time. (laughs) They constantly talk about the dignity of work, and they wouldn't say that if it didn't resonate with people. And so we're, we go to work, we, we're trying to get dignity. That's one of the ideals of work. And there are a whole bunch of other ideals that we could name. Uh, you know, parents tell their kids that, you know, work builds character. So character is one. Purpose is one. And there are probably others. But those ideals are very often not attained in work. The reality of our jobs, the conditions often fall quite short of those ideals. So we go to work seeking dignity and we end up working in undignified conditions. You know, you can think of a lot of, for instance, warehouse and delivery workers who, you know, for the past couple of years, we've been leaning on very heavily. In some right. cases, they can't even go to the bathroom on the job. You know, so there, the, the ideal, the promise is dignity. The reality is, is quite a bit short of that. And when that, when you live in that gap, long enough you know you're trying to hold on to your ideals while also holding on to your reality you're going to feel that strain and you're eventually going you're likely to to burn out yeah so you use the word expectations to what degree are our expectations the culprit in this in in burnout uh to, yeah, to a large degree <laughs> certainly yeah <laughs> um yeah. and what I what I think the the real problem is again not so much individual expectations though of course that's how it's experienced but the the cultural expectations of work that we have those expectations that through work we will be able to find the purpose of our lives mm. or you know transcend ourselves or something like that those expectations are probably what are too high and we may need to reassess those uh, to bring them more in line with reality. You know, if the reality of work is really bad, then yeah, it's probably... <laughs> is, it, is it just that work sucks? Is well, that a reality that we should just join? Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, we... The, the, so that's... The, so the expectations are only half of it, and, yeah. and the reality is the other half. So to beat burnout is going to have to be in closing that gap, I think, from both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, John, but you... In, in your book, you talk about your own journey with burnout, and and to that degree... I mean, you had your dream job for a certain component of this, right? It was like yeah. you had dreamed of becoming a professor and and teaching and doing all these things. And yet there was a point where you said, you know what? This 
this isn't doing it anymore. So does is there an ability to have uh, that purpose and dignity and kind of be there? But then is it just other factors that aren't necessarily being uh, met when we're doing that? Because it sounded at least, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you had a pretty good run where it was really good for a while until it wasn't. And is that the kind of what happens typically in these kind of cases? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you know, I so right. Like you said, I, I was a college professor and I had high ideals for it. Mm-hmm. But again, those ideals were not I didn't just come up with them on a, in a vacuum. They're ideals that came from American working culture generally and specifically academic culture where, you know, to be a tenure track professor is the greatest thing you could do with your life. Right. Yeah. And the expectation is that that truly becomes your life, that you fully identify with the job. And I did, you know, I, I was a college professor, uh, you know, I wore tweed jackets everywhere I went. Uh, (laughs) Love it. And and, yeah, but, um, when your ideals are that high, then Mm -hmm. almost no reality is likely to live up to them. Uh, and in, in my case, you know, objectively speaking, materially speaking, my job was very good. I had a good salary. I had amazing benefits. I had a decent amount of autonomy, but there were, because my ideals are so high, any little deviation. So, you know, I try, I, I head up some committee, but our actions are, you know, blocked, uh, I thought, you know, uh, maybe by administration or, uh, even you experience a slight, you know, personal slight at a conference or something like that, or the students don't do their reading and, you know, those (laughs) things add up and that causes the experience to fall short of the ideals. And that's where over the course of years, my burnout really grew. Well, let's, let's go to the opposite of that. The, uh, in college, you worked as a parking attendant. Right. You were working in a a parking lot, taking money from people who were leaving and no, no risk of burnout there. Right. Because you weren't loading up your your parking attendant job as I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be have this fantastic life. Right. But on the other hand, could you have continued to do that for the next 25 years? No, probably not, though, at that specific parking lot. Uh, which is, it's a very magical parking lot. It uh, is the subject of a really fun documentary called The Parking Lot Movie, by, directed by Megan Ekman. I, uh-huh. I fully endorse uh, watching it. It's, yeah, it's, it's a fun movie. It's a feel-good movie. And some people do work at that parking lot for quite a few years. I mean, the owner, Chris Farina, has owned it for i think 30 years and he you know he takes the occasional shift still uh may even be more than occasional so yeah i mean i right i could not i would not have wanted to be a parking lot attendant forever but yeah it was a job that i took immediately after getting my phd so i became i didn't i didn't get an academic job so i at first and so i became a I got my PhD and immediately got a job as a parking lot attendant across the street from the university where I'd just been awarded a doctoral degree. <laughs> oh. And right and the the it was a great job because the gap was pretty narrow between ideal and reality. Uh I didn't expect it to fulfill me. I 
expected, you know, a, a decent wage. And I, I got I got better than I expected. Uh, the pay was pretty good. Uh, the community among the coworkers was excellent. Some of the people I worked with are still people that I'm in frequent contact with. You know, they're wow. friends of, wow. of mine. Well, what, 16 years later, 17 years later. Yeah, that's crazy. So I think the general kind of perception of burnout out there is that burnout happens because we're overworked, that there's just too much on our plate. What I'm hearing you say is that that might be part of it, but that isn't the essence of it. There's more to it. Would you agree? Is that am I making that statement correctly? Yeah, definitely. So the researchers who study burnout and the, the leading researchers on this topic are named Christina Maslach and Michael Leiter. They identify six areas of our working lives where a gap or a mismatch is most likely to lead to burnout. And workload is one of those six. Okay. Uh, it's not the only one, but it's, of course, a pretty common area. And a mismatch with your workload doesn't necessarily just mean overwork. It could mean underwork. It could mean yeah. that you are sitting at a yeah. desk and you, you're just overlooked. You know, <laughs> no one gives you anything meaningful to do. And so in that case, you, you might fit, you know, the frustrated profile uh, of, of burnout. You know, you might not feel exhausted, but but you may be very frustrated and feel like, well, why am I bothering? Why show yeah. up when I'm not accomplishing anything? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's cool that uh, we talked to Phil Zimbardo uh, a, a few months ago on the anniversary of the the 50th anniversary of the Stanford experiment, the prison experiment, and he mentioned about how the the experiment got interrupted because of Christine, Christine Maslach, who at the time was his girlfriend, as soon to become his wife. But but is it any? You know, is it any surprise that she was the one that went on to study to become the preeminent researcher in burnout you know, with, with this <laughs> right. kind of insight? You know? Right. Yeah. Well, they were in the prison experiment. They were trying to study depersonalization. So that and that's one of the three main dimensions or components of burnout. Um, so there's exhaustion is one and the one we're most familiar with. Uh, depersonalization or cynicism is the second. And then the sense of ineffectiveness is the third. And right, yeah, Maslach's research followed, you know, the Zimbardo's. Like she was originally interested in studying depersonalization as he was. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, what she found were these uh, very idealistic workers in the Bay Area. So there were social workers, counselors, poverty attorneys, people like that, used the term burnout to describe their frustration with their work and particularly with their clients. So they mm. would complain like, ah, oh, you know, I went into the law to, to answer legal problems, not, you know, people problems, <laughs> right? And so yeah. that, you know, the... So yeah, the research on burnout directly comes out of research on depersonalization. And as she continued studying over the next, I mean, now almost 50 years, but uh, she came up with a model that incorporated not just depersonalization or cynicism, but also exhaustion and ineffectiveness. You had talked, uh, you, you had started to talk about the six factors when workload mismatch was one of them. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about some of the other factors that go into this as well? 
Right. Yeah. So the the six are workload reward. So are you getting and reward can be material or immaterial. Okay. Um, there's fairness. There's community. So when your workplace community is unhealthy for any number of reason, there is uh, autonomy mm-hmm. and values. So that last mm-hmm. one values is the the match between your personal values and the values of the place where you work. Okay. So if you're a, you don't want to be working for the NRA if you're a big gun rights advocate or, you know, laws or anti-gun kind of thing. Okay. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think that we often find, you know, we go to work and, you know, companies recruit us based on these, you know, great statements of their beliefs and their vision. And then we get there and their <laughs> actual interests lie somewhere else. I, I can I can relate to that. I mean, my first job, I, I was going in and I was thinking that the company I was going to be working for was this consulting company going in, solving all of these issues. And and ultimately it wasn't. It was like, no, how can we sell these these toasters to get into the into the, you know, the hands of, of these award uh, recipients because that's how we make our money and so it was a very disconnect from the ideal that i was sold versus the ideal that was actually reality and what it was so yeah john we're recording this in march of 2022 there's all kinds of trouble in the world the pandemic is hopefully uh, winding down but uh, there's um, a war that has emerged recently in russia and ukraine a lot of people are burned out on news much less Work from home has been going on for a lot of white collar workers for the past couple of years. There's a lot of burnout there. What what tips would you have? What could you share with people that might help deal with these feelings of feeling burned out? And and, and John, I think this is a question you can just respond to Tim because I think he's asking for himself. So there you <laughs> go. <laughs> this is well, me search. This is me. This search. is the way you know we we use the the podcast just to answer our own questions and so. But oh, yeah, really, really, this I mean, is about Tim. I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean, why why do you think I wrote the book? You know, to, to... <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the person I'm trying to convince is first of all myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, Tim, but. I don't think that there is a really good individual solution to a problem like burnout because the causes of the problem are not individual. You know, there isn't something that has gone wrong with this worker that leads them to burnout. Like they didn't make a mistake. You know, they're not failing to optimize their life. Rather, the problem has to do with you know the the cultural and organizational values that they have absorbed and they're trying to live up to in conditions where that's just not possible uh and so yeah i mean i i'm i'm hesitant to to talk about like you know news burnout or or other things like that because i think like i don't want to get too far away from you know the really solid research on the the problem and you know the the really good research is on occupational burnout and an emerging area of research is parental burnout. Um, but beyond that, I, I try to be pretty cautious. <laughs> which makes sense, which makes yeah. sense. So yeah. 
one of the things that you've you've said a couple times now is this idea that it's not just it's kind of the societal expectations around jobs and work and uh, so that reminds me it takes me back to you know sociology classes in college and thinking about the protestant work ethic and kind of that how that has at least manifested itself in the u.s and maybe much of even western europe maybe even larger around the globe how much do you think that has been a, a factor in some of these elements that surround burnout. Is there a difference for, for and, and I don't know if there's any research on this, is there a difference between cultures that may not have that Protestant work ethic versus ones that do? So, Yeah. And the, the, the thing about the Protestant work ethic is that it has fully expanded across the globe uh and <laughs> yeah you know to to not traditionally protestant countries uh and you know that yeah this comes from the sociologist max weber and this is something he fully predicted yeah that you know it it stops being about religion and when it does then it can be exported very easily and it has been and the main driver of the protestant ethic is anxiety Mm -hmm. So classically, that is a religious anxiety. And the question is, am I among God's elect? You know, mm -hmm. Will my soul be saved? And the idea in Calvinist theology was that this was a question you could never know for sure. But you could <laughs> can you could try to convince yourself. And this is the key thing is you're trying to convince yourself that you are among the elect and the mechanism for proving that became laboring very diligently in a calling so having high ideals for your work and committing yourself totally to them that religious anxiety is mostly gone like not very many americans have that kind of religious concern in the 21st century but we do have anxiety we do have anxiety about our, about our worth, about our status, and we reach for exactly the same conclusion or the, exactly the same solution to that anxiety, which is hard work. Well, what is my worth as a person? Am I a good citizen? Am I uh, a valuable employee? Well, how am I going to, I need to convince myself that I am. And so I work harder and harder to prove to myself that. I am valuable. I, I love this idea of needing to convince yourself. That is the, I think the a, a key piece of this is that idea that we have this angst and it is like, I have to get rid of the angst and the way that I can do that then is through uh, this kind of transposition of worth into something else that I can now say, oh, if I just do good at this work, then that proves that I, and I will then convince myself that I am worthy and I am, I'm, you know, the, all of the good things that come from that. So really yeah. fascinating stuff. Well, cause it, it feels like something that we have control over. Yes. You know, yes. and the fact is we don't really have control <laughs> over our, over how other people see us. You know, if we think about like our social value or, or our right. status, that's up to someone else to decide. And that's, that's hard to deal with. And so, all right, well, I'm going to bring it back to something I can control, which is how hard I work. But then we end up in the wrong conditions, working ourselves too hard and, and into burnout. 
I wanted to go back to the the religious stuff because it really struck me that you brought up a couple of uh, papal encyclicals, uh, Rerum Novarum and Laborum Exertions. And I'm just wondering about what you think, is there sort of a positive role that um, that organized religion has played in helping sort of build mindsets around sort of the appropriate way for us to look at work as a, you know, as a meaningful and important thing? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, my PhD was in religious studies and, you know, in in every area of life, um, religion can be both the cause of the problem and the solution to the problem, <laughs> right? And yeah. so I, you know, I think that religion plays a role in the emergence of our, I think, you know, ultimately toxic work ethic. But there are also the possibilities for, you know, remedying that solution or remedying that problem uh, in religion. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I am Roman Catholic myself. And so I look often to the Catholic tradition uh, for answers, but certainly Catholicism does not have all of the answers uh, on this question. And what I, what I find in, in the Catholic tradition, uh, particularly in those encyclicals you mentioned, so yeah, an encyclical for listeners uh, is a, a letter. It's a teaching letter that the popes write and, you know, in the old days would circulate uh, throughout, uh, you know, to, to various bishops and, and uh, be disseminated that way. In these, these recent encyclicals, the popes have really emphasized the dignity of the person before they ever go to work. Mm. So when politicians in the U.S. talk about the dignity of work, what they usually mean is you only have dignity if you work for pay. What the popes are saying is that you have dignity before you ever go to work or if you never go to work. And so what that means is it's up to your employer to meet your dignity, to respond to it. Uh, with conditions that are adequate to the dignity that you already have. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you for for commenting on that. It just uh, coming from eight years of Jesuit education myself that uh, I just couldn't escape <laughs> not talking about that. It, I think it's I think it's interesting though what you were just saying in in that difference between the the more recent you know kind of uh, Pope edicts around dignity comes before work versus otherwise. And you can see, at least within the United States, and I'm drawing really big generalizations, that that has been really that that idea of work. And so thus, you know, any type of welfare, any type of unemployment, any type of, of you know, lack of being fully employed can be viewed very negatively from a societal perspective and probably have some other major psychological factors that weigh in on the individual just because of that, because of that lack of dignity that they are then subscribing to themselves or subscribing to this this kind of worldview that you have to work in order to do that. I have no idea where I was going with any question there, but it just yeah. it, it struck me as a really interesting kind of testament to how we're looking and how we view work as well as dignity in the two on how they're related. I thought that was really great. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely true. You know, you think, uh, it was, I mean, now a, a decade ago, um, the, the huge, you know, Mitt Romney gaffe 
uh, in his uh, uh, presidential candidacy was he talked about makers and takers. He talked about the 47 percent of Americans who don't uh, aren't aren't productively employed or something like that. And of course, that 47 percent includes like children um, <laughs> whom we don't normally expect to work. But and, yeah, and retired I, folks. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, when you start building dignity on someone's paid employment, then a lot of people are going to be left out through no fault of their own. So children are left out. Uh, disabled people are left out. People who are caring for others full time, whether they're caring for little children or they're caring for other relatives, you know, it's you have to make all these exceptions to that rule. And I think my rule is way simpler. It's like, well, everybody has dignity, period. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Actually, that that is a much better, much better model. Um, it's certainly not only is it simpler, but I like it better. Let me just put it that way. I think it, this would be an appropriate time to start asking about uh, about music because uh, <laughs> sure. I think I think I waited long <laughs> enough. Um, so, like in in your, I think it was in your acknowledgments, you, you mentioned that the War on Drugs was really an, uh, their their album Lost in a Dream was really an important record for you while you were writing this book. Uh, why is so? I, I, there's a whole bunch of questions that come from that. But do you like to listen to music while you work? Like, were, like was Lost in the Dream just on constantly while you were working? Are you actually writing? Yes. Yes. I wrote most <laughs> of the book while listening to one album. And I I can say I am not the only author to have done that with that specific album. Oh. Uh, it's in fact, yeah, Lost in the Dream. They played, I live in Dallas and they played here a month or two ago. And I joked to my wife, like, oh, we should go and I'll bring my laptop. Um, but, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So, so I, I do have to say, you had one of the best quotes, and I'm going to misquote this, but it was from one of your blogs. And it said, it was like, I think more books have been written than babies while listening to The War on Drugs. And I thought right. that was just given what you had just said about, yes, it's a, this work thing as opposed to a, in more of that romantic, like, oh, honey, let's go on a date. But no, we're bringing the laptop so we can work at, the, at this. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was great. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, I do like to listen to music while I work. I don't always, but a lot of the time. And I don't like music where, uh, where the vocals are particularly prominent. So yeah, I, yeah. I hope this is not, you know, heresy to say, but I don't think Bob Dylan is great work music <laughs> because it's, it's all about the vocals, you know, the, the lyrics and the storytelling are, you just get so wrapped up in it. And when you're trying to write words, those words, you know, interfere with the ones that, uh, that you're trying right. to write. And with uh, the War on Drugs and particularly that album, uh, the lyrics, I, I don't have no idea what the lyrics are to most of these oh, songs. Oh, no way, really? <laughs> um, and, uh, because, you know, I think that the, the lyrics are not particularly prominent in the mix. Um, yeah. And in fact, I know that the War on Drugs, they're hugely influenced by Dylan. And I think their most recent album is more Dylan-esque perhaps, but um, the... It, it's instrumentally, you know, forward, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, it has a very consistent, mellow mood. And it's 
like exactly 60 minutes long. Uh, <laughs> so you put it on and you know that, okay, well, I got a, 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 an hour to concentrate. And I, it may be that there's even a little bit of like the kind of arc of that album may correspond well to to work. I mean, like the last the last like three songs or so, you know, you can't like there's you, it's kind of like kicking you into like a little bit of a higher gear. Mm-hmm. Um so, Don't yeah. be too generous with the kicking part. I mean, it's a pretty <laughs> mellow album. It is, overall. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. all and, relative, and I, Tim. It is it, all it relative. Is. And you're, you know, have 45 minutes of, you know, kind of really mellow. Super and you go, mellow. You go yeah. up a beat. That's pretty yeah. good. It's vibey, though. It's, it's really mm-hmm. cool that that you can do that with, with any kind of lyrics. I and mean, we, we ask this question of lots of people. And so many of them just say that they don't mind listening to music as long as there's no lyrics, as long as it's mm-hmm. or, or the lyrics are in a different language where they, that they don't understand. Yeah. Yes. So I was going to say that another great uh, artist for, for me, for working is Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. You know, it's, it's vocals, but the vocals are in Punjabi uh, <laughs> and the songs are, you know, the, just these incredibly long grooves. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, yeah, it's also, I find that, yeah, it's, it's good for work. It's also just like, I find the music so uplifting, uh, to, to listen to. Yeah. His ragas can go a long time. They yeah. last a long time. And that's, uh, that is fun. Uh, I, I can imagine that if you're right in it, if you're right in there with it, that that could be propelling from a musical perspective. Yeah. Um, that, that's cool. Okay, John, I don't normally ask a lot of questions during this section, but you, you did say Neil Young over Bob Dylan for oh, dinner. Right. W- help us understand what was the what was the deciding factor to pick Neil over Bob? <laughs> uh I I mean I I like his music better. Um yeah. I yeah, I mean as as one thing like in in the book, they both played a really important role in the arguments. So when I was thinking about the history of burnout, you know, burnout is this term that appeared in, well, it was psychologists started paying attention to it in 1973 and 74 and workers had been talking about it for, you know, some years prior to that. And uh, I was just listening to, you know, my local uh, rock radio station, KKXT here in Dallas and driving around and, um, Shelter from the Storm came yeah. on the radio and there's a line in there where Dylan says, I was burned out from exhaustion. I thought, wait a minute, what year was this album? I think the album came out in early 1975. It was recorded in 74. It's like, yeah. huh. So Dylan is singing about burnout at exactly the same time that Christina Maslach in California and Herbert Freudenberger in New York are publishing the first articles on burnout. And then, you know, I was listening to um, Neil Young's 1974 album On the Beach and Ambulance Blues also has a line about burnout. And I should say Ambulance Blues came out before Blood on the Tracks. Um, (laughs) So for whatever that's worth. Yes, yes. Let's give Neil some credit for that. (laughs) But it was just so interesting to me that you've got you know, right at the same time, you have these two psychologists working independently, coming to, 
I'd say complementary conclusions about this this new condition called burnout. And meanwhile, you know, these musicians also presumably working independently on opposite coasts are also, you know, coming up with using this term burnout. And I thought, well, there's something, something culturally in the air at that moment in 1973, 74, that they were all picking up on. And that kind of led me to think, well, what, you know, what was going on economically, culturally in the United States in the early to mid seventies and historians view that period, especially 1973 as a real watershed in, in us history and especially in us labor history. So work started to change in 1973 and the workers who had started talking about burnout I think were the the first people to experience some of those changes and the psychologists and the musicians were all kind of leading indicators of a massive change that was on its way. That's so that's fascinating because um, my recollection of uh, those years and regrettably I'm old enough to, you know, having lived through those those 1973, 74 years, is that the term burnout sort of referred to people who were turning to drugs because they couldn't do, they couldn't survive in, in regular culture. They were burned out. They were burnouts, you know, was, was the sort of the term to label someone as some, as, as a person who, who really couldn't survive and wasn't surviving in the sort of the regular world. So they turned to drugs as this alternate reality. And, and and I didn't realize that this was such a watershed moment, though, in yeah. labor history as well. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that the that the psychologist picked up the term from you know the culture. Yeah, you know Herbert Freudenberger, who's you know if if Maslach is the godmother of uh, of burnout, Freudenberger is the godfather. I actually sometimes think of them as the Lenin and McCartney of burnout. Um, <laughs> but, uh, they, you know, Freudenberger, he, he, uh, he worked, he, I think he was uh, one of the founders of the St. Mark's free clinic in New York's East village. And there, you know, he was ministering to people in the counterculture. He was, he was a psychiatrist. Um, but he had learned about the free clinic movement in in the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic mm-hmm. uh, in San Francisco. In I think he spent like nineteen seventy or seventy one there, uh, and you know that term burnout. You know Maslach heard it in Bay Area workers, so it's possible that it was something that migrated from the counterculture into the mainstream culture, and you know ultimately into the psychological literature. Yeah. Can I ask a non-music question, Tim? Can I come well, back? If you to have this? to, if you have to, yeah. Because well, I think this is really <laughs> it, th- this whole idea that this has been around for it, it's been around for a while. It's been around before 1973, even you know, in, in different pieces of this. And just wondering, you know, given the the prevalence of this, you know, are there things that we can do as individuals? As you said, this is not just an individual component there's a larger you know job structure and and societal pieces to this but are, are there things that you uh, have identified that maybe as an individual if i'm starting to go ah, i'm wondering if i'm getting there that i can do to help myself so that i can avoid having burnout yeah it's it's tough again right yeah. cuz you know we we live in a, a burnout culture 
And so you're, you're really swimming against the tide. Okay. Uh, if you're trying to do this on your own, the one of the, well, two, I'd say two of the biggest things, you know, one is to think about limits, mm. to think first, most fundamentally about the limit of your life. You are a limited, finite, mortal being, and you can't, you can't do everything that you might want to, mm. uh, you have limited time and the you know, work takes up a lot of our time. And I think that trying to set hard limits on work is is going to be crucial to, you know, well, to limiting burnout. Yeah. Um, of course, if you are the one person in your company who has hard limits, you know, you're weird and you're going to be a problem for the others. And yeah. so the second big component is to talk with your coworkers, your customers, clients, etc. about both your ideals and expectations and the reality of the work that you're doing. And it's only kind of communally, I think, that we're going to be able to discover what reasonable limits ought to be. Oh, I love that I, because it's it, you, you bring in both that individual piece, but then the, the larger piece of, you know, the community around you and kind of bringing that together. And it goes back. I it reminds me of the, the when you were talking about the monasteries in the book, right? And you 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 kind of highlighted this. And the one that they only work three hours a day, they have very much a very limited. But the other, I think, the ones in Minnesota had a longer, but they had a different perspective on this. And so I think that was um, kind of very cool as you think about all of that together. So. Yeah, right. It, the, the monasteries offer a different set of ideals. And yeah. some monasteries are really going for instantiating those ideals and others make a, a few more compromises. Yeah. <laughs> well, life is full of compromises. And uh, regrettably, we ha we do have a hard stop coming up. And we just want to express our gratitude, Jonathan. Thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Jonathan, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our beer-floated brains. <laughs> that was that was a fun part of the uh, speed <laughs> round, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I still, you know, it's been a while since we actually talked with them. I still have not tried a beer float. Oh, I think I need I think I need a warm, really warm summer day. Yeah, yeah, and uh, try my version as well with Guinness. So with Guinness, yeah, okay. it, I, that that's my advocacy. But anyway, you, you think if I go to a bar and I ask for a Guinness float, that they would be able to provide me with one? You would at the Dubliner. In, oh yeah, in St. Paul. Yeah, the Dubliner in St. Paul. They'll serve you a beer float. Yeah, they will with oh, Guinness actually. With Guinness, I'm there. We go. I yes. might have to take a trip down to. The Dubliner in St. Paul, Minnesota. Check out. Yeah, definitely check it out. Okay, so Kurt, what struck you in our conversation with, let's just keep moving. <laughs> you don't want to keep going down the beer float and no. where you can get it in, in the no. Twin Cities, you know, regional area? Come on. what? Why, why not? You don't think people are going to be excited. Since, since we have probably right. like only okay. one other listener in Minneapolis. So it's, like, it's a small audience. <laughs> That's your wife. There we go. Right. So there we go. Right. My kids don't even listen anymore. All right. Um. So. <laughs> getting back to the, the, the show um what i thought was interesting is jonathan just like jen said look 
burnout isn't an individual issue. It's a corporate issue. And this is so important to think about this idea that we we tend to think about burnout as, oh, my gosh, what can I do? And yes, you can do things, but it's not an individual issue. It's a corporate issue. And what John brought to this conversation for me is that it's still the, the world tends to perpetrate this myth that individuals can do something about it. Yeah. Right. That, that, oh, you're getting burned out. Well, take a walk around the, the lake, you know, uh, take a breather, listen to some music, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, go, go, go look outside for, for 15 minutes and just <laughs> calm yourself and come back and you'll be better. You know, go yeah. get a massage. There and, you go. That, that's, that's, that's yeah, it. And, and when you're done looking outside for 15 minutes, come back and get the work done that you would have been doing for the last 15 minutes yeah damn it it's still due at the end of the day and this different pieces here and this is this is the myth of sisyphus this is pushing the boulder up the hill only to get to the top of hill and and have the gods just push it back down the hill and say start over again you know Uh, i think that that's terrible and for me this connects to we uh, tend to take it on because we feel like we have agency okay explain that well, so, you know, agency is this idea that, that we have some, a, a locus of control. And I, and I believe that we do, of course, you yeah. know, humans do have a locus. We have, we have persuasion abilities. We have the ability to, you know, get a hoe and, you know, or get a shovel and dig a hole. I mean, we, we can do stuff, <laughs> you know, we're not just malleable, you know, you know, bags of skin. We yeah. You know, stuff. as I'm thinking about that report, instead I can go get a hoe. And, and dig, and a, dig hole. a hole. But, you know, I could do that. But I think that the, it, it ends up being a myth that we can do, that we can have agency, that our locus of control includes burnout. You yeah. know, and, but we frame it as we always frame things as like, I got this job, this job is mine. If I get fired, it's on me. Environment matters, context matters in the corporate world. And I, and I feel like it's not. We're not wrecking. We're not doing a good job of recognizing the fact that that society and the corporate culture has a role in has an active role in burnout. And I think the another in, interesting thing that Jonathan brought up is this idea of Protestant work ethic and the the idea of how that's playing in to this kind of pandemic of of burnout. This idea that. It's, you know, am I enough question? And that's an unanswerable question. Right, right. It's a, So you can never be enough because we can't control what other people think of us. We can't control how we're going to be be perceived. So this whole, this kind of gets back to agency in some ways, right? That, you know, we're buying into a mythical frame that I can be enough if I only work harder. If I, if, if I'm the first one in and the last one out, right. (laughs) You know, if I present the image that I'm working really, really hard, then I'll be able to manage the expectations of others. And then, you know, they'll love me for what I'm doing and my job and I'll have security and blah, blah, blah. And it's a myth. Yeah. And it reminds me again of, of some of the stoic teachings, this idea that, you know, we can only control what we have control over and yet right. we worry about all of these other factors and it, it, if we don't have control over it you know it's kind of useless to worry about them i mean granted there are things maybe we can do to prepare in case some negative things happen but generally speaking you know this idea that we have all of this agency as you talked about 
is is a myth and you said it and the idea that i'm going to be able to control what you do or what somebody else does you know i can influence but i can't control and we we way too much emphasis on that and i think to this point that jonathan talks about and what jennifer talked about last week is we take that internally and that lends itself into this culture of burnout that is being being pervasive uh, around us today. Yeah. So maybe it's about managing the tasks. Cecile Peer talked about managing the tasks, not the people. Mm, yeah. And I think that there's something really valuable in that. And it also reminds me a little bit of Kimberly Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality. Let's bring our full selves to work. Let's allow for our full selves to be brought to work. Let's create a corporate culture that allows our full self to be at the table uh, so that we can understand, so that especially leaders and managers can understand what the hell's going on and how do we manage, how, uh, not how do we solve the people problem, how do we solve the management problem of the tasks? How do well, we organize and prioritize? And again, it goes back to what Jennifer said. It's like, as a leader, how are you setting this up? How are you modeling this? How are you oh, yeah. creating the culture that is one that doesn't lead to burnout, that leads to you know thriving and fulfillment and various other things? And I thought Jonathan said a really interesting piece. It's this changing the paradigm kind of concept, this idea of dignity. Everybody has dignity period, I think is oh, his quote. Right, right. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Like just to say, we're not going to base your dignity on your work output, right? Your work output is just what your work output is, but your human dignity is intact, period, regardless of what you do or don't do. You're dignified think, as a person, right? I think that if there's one thing that we take away from this is that, is that everybody has dignity, period. And, and if we can go with that, you know, you can, you can going back up to Cecil, right? You, you can uh, manage the tasks, right? Yeah, you can, you can yeah. focus in on what you need to do in this role. This is what we do. But regardless of that, that person still has dignity, whether they achieve it or not. There's a, as a human being, there's a certain amount of innate dignity that comes with that. And we need to appreciate that. And we need to celebrate that. And yeah, manage the task, but make sure that you're giving dignity to that person. That kind of ties into, uh, for me, his comments about uh, how he dissects a couple things from burnout. One is um, working working harder doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do better in your job, right. and right. And loving your job doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to not burn out. Right? Did I, did I say that correctly? Yeah, that, yeah. Right. And and I think that and he he went through those those six. Uh, items that that I, I didn't want to go through again, but this idea of we're gonna like we're we're more likely to burn out when we're isolated, right? right? Or when we lack support, and mm -hmm. and we can need to pay attention to these signs, right? To to be aware, like if we're lacking support or if we're feeling isolated, we're not going to be as successful in our job, and yeah. that's gonna that is also going to lead to burnout. Which again is one of the pieces when we think about remote work, which. Lots of mm. people are finding refreshing and 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 wonderful, 
those are some things we need to take into consideration as we move yeah. further on, particularly if you're a leader. Are people feeling isolated? Are they feeling like they don't have the support? Because that's a lot of what happens when we come together. And so, again, this is a hard issue uh, today in the world where is remote going to be permanent? Is is in-person going to be the, the thing that yeah. we go back to? And there's going to be some conglomeration of this together. But as a manager, as a leader, think about what this means from a burnout perspective and knowing that isolation and lack of support are really key to that. Also, he talked about this lack of alignment with the corporate culture. Yeah. Right? That yeah. idea, I think, is really interesting as well, is what is the corporate culture and making sure that we understand how we can align with that, what it means. Yeah. Uh, those are, again, organizational issues, not individual issues. And if we're not aligned, hit the eject button, right? I mean, we're living in this world where there's a tremendous employment flexibility. So, you know, go somewhere where your job will be valued and where you will be valued, uh, I, I think, you know, where you align with the corporate culture. Well, and another piece of this is, um, you know, we talked about the rewards that we get and uh, that we expect and, and, and or not get and a job that's just taxing. And this idea. So this is the other interesting piece. And you talked about this. You know, you can love your job, but it also is this piece that, you know, you don't have to be working long hours to get burnout. You don't right. have to be, you know, burning the candle at both ends to feel burnout. You can have a taxing job that you're isolated in, you don't have support, you're not aligned with the culture and you don't feel rewarded for it. And that can be burnout. You can <laughs> feel burnout. Right. Even if you're that's working right. 40 or less hours, it doesn't mean that you can't have burnout. And that's a, that's a thing too. Leaders need to understand. It's like, well, you know, everybody has, they go home on, you know, Friday at four, 4 PM and we don't work over the weekend. That doesn't mean that you don't have burnout in your organization. You need to be thinking about all these things. So yeah, there was so much uh, literature, like in the '90s, around you know making sure that every employee feels connected to the corporate culture, the the mission and vision statement, and you know those. It, it was presented in such a way that really implied what we need to do is make sure the damn employees just follow the mission and vision. You know, as opposed to let's respect and provide dignity to the, to the employees that say that that may not be their thing. They yeah. may not actually be aligned to it. And uh, what whatever you're doing, you could be a line chef in, in at Applebee's. And if you're, you know, if you're in a chain restaurant, but you're doing work that, you know, that you see yourself connected to the idea of I'm providing food for people who are hungry. That's fantastic. The person right next to you might be going, I can't stand this job. No. Right. And, and that's okay. I, again, my recommendation is find happiness. Well, and the, and the yeah. other piece of this that he talked about was set limits, right? Know your limits, limits on what you do. Um, you can't do everything, you know, and just make sure that those limits are hard because we tend to have limits yeah. that are mushy. <laughs> You know, is that, kind a, of, is that a technical eh. behavioral science term? Well, it, that it is. I, I, yeah, as my PhD will tell you, the mushiness of, mushiness. of limits is a is a well researched and and very. No, it's not. It's you're so <laughs> you're so scholarly. <laughs> it's mushy. It's squishy. It's uh, what other weird word could I use? The idea that we 
we tell ourselves we'll have limits, but then somebody asks us and we know the power of people. Again, as Vanessa Bonds, we have more influence than we think and leaders yeah. even have more influence. And so it's hard to say no to your boss. It's hard to say no to a coworker. And sometimes we just have to say no. Well, I, I'm paraphrasing Nancy Reagan. There we go. Just say no. <laughs> just say no. Well, to what degree do expectations built into this? Oh my God. I mean, that's a whole nother aspect. When we think about this is the expectations of what we need to be doing as uh, the social norms of all of this. And then you yeah. tie that in with some of the stuff that we've been really researching and thinking about lately about how expectations actually are not just this element that's out there in the ether that they actually impact our body and brain functioning. <laughs> so right. this idea, you know, Aaliyah Crumb's work, all the kind of elements of, of um, you know, the uh, placebo effect, the nocebo effect, all of those factors that come into play. So yeah, expectations about what jobs are, what this role is, what this company expects from us are real impacts on if we feel burnout, if we feel this alignment, if we don't, all of those factors. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, that that's a that's a great great way of maybe pulling it to an end. Do uh, you think that wraps it up? Is it that what might. you think? Is that I, what you're saying? I guess so. I guess that's what I'm saying. Well, okay. Good. <laughs> okay. Well, we could see from our discussion on burnout with Jonathan and with Jen Moss, since this is a two part series, that burnout is not an individual problem, and yet it is the individual who suffers first and foremost. Corporate leaders, and I think that this likely falls more in the HR or people experience domain, they need to pay more attention to burnout as part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I think it's an equity issue. Yeah, I think I think it's true. And ultimately, it's about the culture and the and how leaders help set the tone for what that corporate culture is. If they want the culture to be supportive of time off. Um, they need to model it. I mean, it, and we go back to what we talked about with Jennifer and Jennifer thing, Elon Musk and his like demanding of 40 hours inside oh, right, of the organization right. sets a corporate culture. It is it the model. And so, okay, if that's what you're choosing, but you got to understand there are ramifications from burnout uh, uh, with that. Yeah. So with that, Folks, we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Behavior Grooves, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jonathan Malesic. And the discussion with Jennifer Moss as well. Uh, uh, absolutely. And if you found these helpful along your journey to avoid burnout, drop us a line. We would love, love, love to hear from you. And with that, we encourage you to go out and find your groove.